Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. It's my privilege to welcome all of you in this house. Welcome to all of you in the overflow this morning. It's been a while since I've been able to say that. James Weekly and Matt Powell are leading in the overflow now for this next season. If you ever feel cramped in this house at 830, in this room, understand that the overflow is right up the hallway. It's a smaller uh, environment for worship and a good opportunity to worship live with James Weekly and follow the leadership of Matt Powell and then join us now at the sermon time. God bless you all. Welcome Franklin Campus. We love you so much. Pastor Eric, you're my brother and I love you so dearly. Open your Bibles to the book of Nahum. Good luck with that. I'm going to give you a minute to find it. Nahum is one of those little prophets in the Old Testament. You'll probably do best to find Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Thumb back through the book of Malachi, a little bitty book, and then I think it's Zechariah and Haggai and Zephaniah and Habakkuk, little bitty books, and that's why they're hard to find. And then you'll find Nahum, a little bitty, little bitty prophetic word that is only three chapters long in the Old Testament. Nahum. I've been your pastor for 14 years. I have never preached a sermon out of the book of Nahum until today. So, uh, so some of you haven't heard, perhaps, Nahum preached in a long time or maybe ever. First eight verses are where we'll start, what we'll read this morning. Book of Nahum, he's a prophet. Believe it or not, these words are words intended to encourage. Uh, So listen and find courage this morning from what the word of God says in the book of Nahum chapter 1. Take out a pen if you would. As we read these first eight verses, I want you to underline the places where it says the Lord is. Underline the things that it says about God. It's going to say three things in these uh, first eight verses. The Lord is, the Lord is, the Lord is. Find those and listen for those and underline those as well. Also listen for, for the, the city to whom the whole thing is addressed because that might be interesting to some of you if you begin to connect the dots. Uh, Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1. This message concerning Nineveh came as a vision to Nahum who lived in Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous God. Filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. And he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. I love that image. Think about that. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade and the green forest of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to dust. In his presence, are you listening? The mountains crumble to dust in his presence. Verse 7. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. But he will sweep his enemies in an overwhelming flood. He will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. And that's just the beginning. 
book of Nahum. Years ago, I attended Western Kentucky University uh, for my undergraduate degree. I, I love college. Uh, college at Western starts up here in the next week here in Bowling Green. We're excited uh, to welcome the students back. I, I remember college. I, I really loved those days. I, I really did. And there were certain things that seemed to happen over and over in college, things you look forward to. And at Western, one of the things, one of the odd things that everybody sort of began to anticipate and look forward to was the annual visitation of Brother Jed, Reverend Jed and his wife, Sister Cindy. Did anybody ever remember Reverend Jed and Sister Cindy? Yeah, yeah, those of you into Western, yeah, it's pretty amazing. A brother Jed would show up, and Brother Jed is not a local pastor. He's actually coming out of Missouri, I think. You have to Google him. He is actually rather famous. He is a campus evangelist, and he travels throughout the country, and he lands at college campuses, and he preaches. But the thing is, at Western, people love to come and hear Brother Jed preach primarily to make fun of him. There are actually people who follow him around from campus to campus, and they mock him, and they call themselves Jedheads. They're Jedheads. And they travel with Reverend Jed, and they listen to him preach, and they make fun of him because, honestly, he's a fairly easy target. Now, Brother Jed is a very, very angry man. Brother Jed would sit up outside the student center. He would stand up someplace tall, and he would draw a crowd by just standing up and shouting at people. And when I mean shout at people, he would shout at students as they would walk by, and he would call them names. He would call them names like drunkards and filthy fornicators. That was one of his favorites. He pointed at me one day and said, filthy fornicator. Doesn't even know me. I am probably a lot of things, but filthy fornicator is not one of them. But he didn't care. He would just point and shout out sins. And he would shout out sinners. And he would name the sins. And he would tell everybody at Western's campus that they were going to hell. That was Reverend Jet. And I'm telling you, students would flock to hear it because it was a show you didn't want to miss. It was really kind of fun to watch him point out other filthy fornicators in the crowd. It was really kind of fun to watch him point over to the fraternity guys and call them a bunch of drunken fornicators. I kind of enjoyed that. I mean, honestly, there was a show to it. But then there was always something that happened after he left. Those of us who were Christians on campus, and I was a Christian on campus, and I worked very hard up in the art department. I was an art major. I was really trying to tell my art friends about Jesus. And I remember one day in particularly after Brother Jed had gone and the whole campus was talking and still laughing at him, I remember a circle of art students, none of whom were Christians, sitting around talking about Brother Jed. And one of the women said these words. She said, I don't understand how a man can preach hell in the name of a God of love. Well, what I wanted to say was, honey, I've known you for five years and you have never, ever seemed concerned about the God of love. She had never, ever seen concern about the God of love. But this particular day, when Reverend Jed showed up to preach about hell, all of a sudden, she became very, very defensive of the God of love. That was interesting, interesting. If you read the book of Nahum at first glance, you may think that this is kind of one of those Reverend Jed kind of passages. Because honestly, Nahum has a lot to say about judgment. But you're going to have to notice something different about Nahum. And I'm really asking you to think here and really understand the spirit of the word of God. I want you to look back at verse 1. 
Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Nahum, the introduction to his prophecy. He says, this message, the first word is, is message. Underline that word. Because honestly, the Hebrew word there isn't exactly message. The word there is burden. This burden that came to Nahum. It, it, it was a burden. A burden is something heavy, something heavy that's laid upon you. And this is what I want you to understand. It's what sets the Nahums of the world apart from the Reverend Jeds of the world. When Reverend Jed told us all that we were going to hell, you got the idea that something about that tickled him. You got the idea that if there was a day when Western's campus was going to be pushed into hell, Reverend Jed would like to be the one doing the pushing. You got the idea that if we were all going to burn, he would probably enjoy lighting the match. That's the spirit of his preaching. You got this idea that he somehow enjoyed calling us filthy fornicators and drunkards and sending us all to hell. There was just that spirit about him. But that is not the spirit of Nahum. Notice that for Nahum, his preaching, his message comes as a burden. When Nahum talks about the judgment, the coming judgment of God, and how God is going to sweep the wicked away, understand that he preaches this with a heavy heart. It's a burden. Honestly, I love preachers who preach on hell because somebody's got to preach on hell. Somebody's got to tell the truth about a God who loves us so fiercely that he will one day sweep away his enemies. We've got to preach about that God. But there's something about the men who can talk about hell very, very often and never even seem to have a heavy heart about it. Something about people who can talk about hell and never shed a tear over lost souls. I don't trust those people, to be honest. The message about this God, this fierce, this ferocious God of wrath and justice, this message is a burden for the prophet. It's a burden for Nahum. Understand that. This is a heavy-hearted prophet because the word he brings is not an easy word to bring. Notice the second thing about the introduction. This burden, this message concerning, what's the city's name? Nineveh. Pastor Eric, the rest of you, where have you heard of the city of Nineveh? Who made the city of Nineveh famous? Jonah. 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 What else makes Jonah famous? Do you remember the story? Yeah, Jonah and the big fish. Jonah and the whale. Absolutely. Do you remember why Jonah got swallowed up by the big whale? Because he did not obey God, Jonah did not want to preach to the city of Nineveh. But you know Jonah's story, he ended up preaching to the city of Nineveh. He ended up preaching that God was coming and God was going to judge that great city. Do you remember his story? And you remember what happened after Jonah preached? Nineveh got right with God. Nineveh had a kind of revival. They repented of their sins. They dressed in sackcloth and ashes. They began to weep and they began to pray and ask God to forgive them. And so at the end of Jonah's story, Nineveh is not destroyed. Now, when you get to the book of Nahum, understand, you've got to flash forward about a hundred years. About a hundred years. And a hundred years later, understand something, the revival at Nineveh didn't stick. 
Even though they repented and they cried for their sins and they prayed and they promised to turn over a new leaf and they told God they'd be different people, they went straight back to their old ways. They went straight back to destroying people. They went straight back to conquering and enslaving and raping and killing. They went right back to their old wicked ways. And a hundred years goes by. Do you understand that? A hundred years goes by and Nineveh continues in their wickedness like there's no tomorrow. Like there's no tomorrow. Preacher named Kevin Miller who had to take a long drive as a part of his church work. He had to drive to Fort Wayne, Indiana from his home. He decided to rent a car for that because his whole jalopy apparently probably wouldn't have made the trip. He went to Enterprise. He actually rented a, a big luxury Chrysler, big car like he never drove, a big, wonderful Chrysler to make his long, long road trip. As Pastor Kevin was driving, he's a pastor, as Pastor Kevin was driving, he got to a toll road on, on one of the interstates in Indiana, got to a toll booth, and he just drove right through it. He was enjoying his Chrysler. And it also was a habit. In the car that Pastor Kevin normally drove, in the town where he lived, there were lots of toll booths, and he actually had what they call an I-pass. Have you heard of that? He had an I-pass, which means his car had a sticker on it or some sort of chip, and he could drive right through the toll booths, toll booths where he lived because the I-pass meant that he'd already paid all of his tolls in advance. So at home, he could drive right through toll booths. But now he's in Indiana. He's in another state. And he blew right through the first one before he stopped and realized, my goodness, I don't think this car has an I-pass. I don't have an I-pass in Indiana. And he got a little nervous because he blew right through the toll booth. And he looked back to see if they'd come after him. Because you've always wondered what happens if you just go right through a toll booth. You know what? Nothing happened. He just drove straight through the toll booth. He didn't mean to. Forgot he didn't have an iPad, but honestly nothing happened. And he thought, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. And then he started thinking, well, maybe it does have an iPad. Maybe Enterprise has maybe an iPad on all of its cars. Maybe when you're in a rental car, you don't have to pay toll. So he started telling himself, maybe, maybe that's why it costs so much to rent a car. Maybe all the tolls are thrown in. And while he was thinking all this through, he blew through a second one. Vroom, through a second toll booth. And by this time, he had convinced himself that it was going to be okay. And then he also thought, you know what? These tolls aren't very much. My toll bill for the round trip probably isn't going to be $4. And surely, they're not going to track a preacher in another state down for $4. They're not going to come after a guy for $4 in another state. He was telling himself as he drove through the third one. By the end of his trip, he blew through five toll booths. Five toll booths. And there was in the back of his mind, what if, what if they really do come after, come after people? But he didn't, he didn't think much about it. And especially after he got home. Because when he got home, he just forgot about it. He took the car back, and nobody ever said a word about tolls. One month went by. He had forgotten. He'd gone to Indiana by now. He'd forgotten all about it. Two months goes by. He had forgotten all about it. In the third month, an envelope appeared in his mailbox from the state of Indiana. Highway enforcement. With big letters on the front that said, toll violation. I mentioned he's a preacher. 
He opened the envelope thinking, I can't believe that they would bill a man in another state for $4. Well, it turns out they don't. They add a fine every time you go through a toll booth. His bill now was over $200. You know, that's the funny thing, because as he blew through those toll booths five in a row on that particular sunny morning in Indiana, it really felt like nobody was paying attention. Do you know that they had pictures of him in the car going through the toll booth? They had his picture, the license plate, and his face. You understand? They always knew. And even though whole months go by when nobody seems to say anything and he feels like he's gotten away with it, whole months go by, honestly, they were always aware of who he was and what he had done and they had the plan all along to send him the bill and collect their fine. Do you understand? This is part of what makes the world the way it is because honestly, we just go on our way and it seems like nothing ever happens to sinners. Now, there are always preachers who say that God punishes the wicked, Reverend Jed, all the way down to me. Pastors who will continue to say that God is going to pay attention and God is going to punish and you will always reap what you sow. But honestly, in our lives, it doesn't always look that way. It doesn't always seem that the wicked get punished or that the righteous get rewarded for that matter. It just looks like for the life of me, nobody's paying attention. It looks like all the wicked are getting away with everything. I want you to think about something. Go back to the morning at Western where my friend said, I don't understand how you can preach hell in the name of a God of love. A woman who honestly didn't care much about the God of love anyway. But in that moment, she had this, this sense of how can you talk about hell? If you believe in a God of love. Isn't that interesting how we operate, how our minds work? Because there are actually probably some of you who think the same thing. You're thinking that you don't really know how to put together a God who really does judge sinners. A God who really does know what's going on. A God who really does keep score. You have trouble with that. A God who one day will really return, will really come back to the earth he created and call everyone who ever lived back to life to judge them. Some of you probably have an issue with that, or at least you don't like to think about that. You don't want to think about a God who really does judge or a God who really would condemn people to hell. That really kind of bothers you. In a way, you feel like you might be a, a little more merciful than God because you can't imagine sending people to hell. You can't imagine judgment. You can't imagine punishment. There are a lot of people in the world who talk like that and think like that these days. Brother Tim, you're old-fashioned reading this old passage about condemnation and judgment. Old-fashioned preachers aren't preaching about hell anymore. That might be true. But understand something. Think about how your brain works when you come up against real evil. Think about how your brain works when you read one of those horrible stories about a pedophile somewhere who gets off with his crime. Try to think about the terrorists who, who lace themselves with bombs and walk into a cafe with innocent people and blow themselves up and kill others. Try to think about what goes through your mind when terrorists get in airplanes and fly them into buildings? What goes through your mind? What do people say then? They say, how could God let that happen? 
How could a loving God let that happen? How could God let such evil, such wickedness persist? How can God just stand off and, and sit there with his hands folded and not somehow do something? Do you understand how we put God in a double bind? On the one hand, we don't want to think about a God who, of love who punishes sin. But then on the other hand, there are moments in our lives when we really wonder why God doesn't stand up and do something about sin. To understand that God's justice, his, his wrath against evil is absolutely a part of his love. Notice what the message of Nahum is about. Verse 2, it's that first the Lord is phrase. The Lord is a, say the word, jealous. The Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. The Lord is a jealous God. Several weeks ago, I, I preached a sermon on jealousy, and I talked about your jealousy, my jealousy, as sin. Our kind of jealousy is sin. But God's kind of jealousy is, is different. The scriptures say, thou shalt have no other gods before me. One of the Ten Commandments, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Now, when God says he is jealous, what does that mean? Now, if I'm a jealous person, I'm married to my wife, Casey, and if I get jealous of her, I get jealous of other men because, honestly, the world is filled with other men. Casey works with other men. Casey sees other men who, who have, you know, six-pack abs and, 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 you know, probably smart and make money and drive nice cars. I mean, the world is filled with other men who might be more appealing th than I am. And so, therefore, my kind of jealousy has to do with trying to... to, to Hold on to what is mine, to defend what is mine from rivals. There might be rivals to my wife's love, and that's my kind of jealousy. It's really born out of my own insecurity, and it's born out of the fact that there might be rivals. There might be other men who could take her heart away from me. I dare you to try it, but there might be. Might be. But think about this with me. In God's case, there are no other gods. There is no God but God. So when the scriptures say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, for I am a jealous God, you understand, truly there are no other gods. So whatever it is in your life that you would turn to instead of God is absolutely pathetic and ridiculous and a horrible shame. Do you understand? There is no God but God. That's why it's so absolutely tragic when people put their faith in money or when people put their faith in other people or when someone sits himself or herself up as the God in their own life. That's why there's something so horribly tragic about that. There is no God but God. So when the scripture says that God is a jealous God, it's not that God is jealous for himself. God is jealous for me. And God is jealous for you. His jealousy is related to his love. The fact is, God does love the world. God loves all of the people of the world. He loves us all more than we can possibly imagine. The God of quasars and black holes. The God who speaks the universe into existence. A God of that majesty and grandeur and scale. That God knows your name knows everything about you, knows your thoughts, knows your words even before you speak them. That God knows you and loves you. 
and he's fiercely devoted to you, loves you. He wants to bless your life. He wants good things for you, not just in this life, but for all eternity. And that is why God is a jealous God. Because when you choose to set up false gods, when you choose to turn away from him and seek your own way, that means you're walking away from the only God who can bless you, the only God who can save you. You've just walked away from the only God there is. God is a jealous God. Second thing you notice about God, verse 3, the Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. Slow to get angry. Again, I take you back to this sermon uh, preached uh, originally to the city of Nineveh. You want to talk about a God of wrath, a God of justice, you understand we're talking here about a God of great patience. The city of Nineveh has had multiple chances and now something like a hundred years since Jonah preached that God was paying attention and that God would judge them. Something like a hundred years go by. The Lord is slow to get angry. Now, you and I sometimes get angry. We pop off the handle, though, don't we? When I get angry, it's kind of like a minor explosion, and it happens quickly. That's my kind of anger. When we have anger, we just sort of throw a little fit. We, we pitch a fit, and then we get over it. God's not like us. God's fuse is very, very long. God's anger is controlled, and it is intentional. There's nothing irrational. There's nothing out of control about God's anger. God's very, very slow to get angry. That means even though God is going to punish sin, my sin and your sin, do you understand? He gives us a long, long time to turn back around. God gives us a long, long distance so that we can come back to him. God waits for us. Slow to get angry, Nahum says. Slow to get angry. But he does get angry. He is a God of vengeance. He is a God of wrath. And I want him to be, honestly. I want him to be. A couple of weeks ago, we were down at the Franklin Community Park for, a, for our church-wide baptism. It was just an awesome day with the Franklin campus. Great afternoon. It was so pretty. Do you remember that? The creek was beautiful. And after the baptism, our kids were all playing in the creek. Do you remember that? Well, I was walking up the creek bank that afternoon after the baptism, and I looked down, and there were a bunch of our kids in the water, and it was fun to see them. And I think I was one of the only adults around. And I looked down, and about, this, about the same time I looked, and all the kids were playing, this mama pit bull, a pit bull, came down the hill on the opposite side of the bank and started flashing her teeth and barking at our kids. Did any of you see that? Now you're alarmed. Your kids are fine. Your kids are fine. But a pit bull, a mama pit bull came down that hill and started flashing her teeth and barking at our kids. And our kids just froze in the water. And your pastor, I froze on the bank. I mean, something's got to happen. I'm thinking about that. We've got to do something. This is a pit bull. Who knows where she's come from? And she's obviously got pups. It's a pit bull, a mama pit bull. And then I looked, and the longer I looked, I realized her pups were with her. A mama pit bull with her pups with her, and now she is beginning to threaten our children. I looked around to see if anybody was going to come, and nobody was coming, so that leaves me, yours truly. 
So I start thinking, you know, it would be horrible for our kids, you know, to be attacked by a pit bull. It would also be horrible for our kids to see one of their pastors attacked by a pit bull. I was thinking that too, to be real honest. I don't know what's worse, to lose a kid or, you know, to have all the kids watch me torn to pieces. And I'm thinking this through. I am not brave. So I'm standing on the bank thinking, Lord, help them. Help them. But here's the thing. Do y'all know Teddy Martin? Teddy Martin, biggest deacon in our church, biggest guy, he's big as an ape. I love Teddy. Big guy. This guy is so big. Teddy's sitting right there. And I love you, Teddy. Yeah. Teddy's huge guy, enormous guy. He's got hands like a baseball mitt. You ever shaken hands with Teddy? This huge guy will shake your hands real tender as if to say, I could crush you, but I love you. I'm not kidding. Shake his hand. He could crush you, but he loves you. Yeah, this is Teddy. I'm up here thinking, my goodness, somebody ought to help those kids. Lord, help our kids. And all of a sudden, this is so awesome, Teddy Martin, gigantic Teddy Martin, comes storming down that creek bed. I mean, he's storming through there toward the kids, and he steps between, this is awesome, he steps between the mama pit bull and her puppies, he steps between her and the kids with his body like this. He's like Thor. (laughs) He just stands there, and he never says a word. Never says a word. He just steps in front of that dog and goes, that's all he did. Like, like Conan the dog whisperer, man. He just steps up and goes. And that mama pit bull up that hill. She just leaves up that hill. So right about then, that's when I came down and said, get out of here, dog. Get out of here. <laughs> right then. Right then, baby. I got brave. Right then. Get out of here, dog. Yeah. yeah. Man. I'm saying there was a strong help in that creek that day for our children. And I was really glad it was a man the size of Teddy Martin. I was glad for that. When you read a book like Nahum and you begin to respond to this God of vengeance, I just think the question you need to think about is how big is your God? How strong is your God? How powerful is is your God. There may be that part of you that sort of turns away from a God of vengeance and power. I I really do understand that, but but listen to me. I want a God of vengeance and power. I, I really, really do. I don't think I could bear to live in the world and really think that somehow the wicked just go unpunished. I don't know if I, can, I could really bear to preach to you and preach that God is a just God if a man like Adolf Hitler will somehow go into eternity and never have to answer for the lives of, of millions and millions of Jews that he exterminated. There's something about me that just really couldn't preach if I didn't think that there really is a God who's keeping score. I really, really want to believe that there is a God who's going to hold accountable all of the abortionists and all of the pedophiles. I want to think that there is a God who's going to hold every single one of the tyrants in the world accountable for their actions. Because in this life, I don't see it being fair. I don't see the wicked getting punished. I don't see the righteous getting rewarded. I don't see that here. But this is Nahum's point. It's not over till it's over. 
and it looks like the wicked go unpunished for a long, long time. It looks like the terrorists can fly their planes right into buildings and then slip off into eternity and never, ever have to answer for the blood they shed. It looks like they never, ever have to answer. But the Word of God says everyone will answer. There is a God of justice and a God of wrath who knows what's going on. And on the final day, he will judge the world. He will deliver just punishment. He will sweep his enemies away. And I want there to be a God like that. I want there to be a God of wrath. If there were not a God who is just and fair, a God who will judge and punish, then honestly, this life would be so absurd, so absurd. God is a God of justice. I want to end with words from 2 Peter. They're on the screen. Read these words with me if you would. Listen to what the Word of God says, a reminder. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. I remember one day growing up, my preacher preached a great sermon about Jesus' return, the second coming of Christ. And one of the ladies walking out of church that day, after the preacher preached on the second coming, one of the ladies says, I've been hearing that all of my life. I've been hearing that all of my life. And what was she saying about that? She said, I've been hearing it all of my life, and he ain't come back yet. Been hearing it all of my life. Notice what the scripture says. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. no. He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Verse 12, on that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, he has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Nahum verse 7, the Lord is good, good. A strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. Do you understand the truth of this scripture? There really is a God who judges sinners and one day will judge sinners for eternity. Do you understand that? There really is a God of vengeance and wrath. At the present moment, God is a God of such goodness and patience. God who prolongs the history of the world. He continues to let the world go round. And it does seem that evildoers continue to have their way. But understand, it's a sign of God's patience. God doesn't want anyone anyone to have to face punishment. God wants to give the whole world time to repent. God wants to give you time to repent. Well, Brother Tim, I heard you preaching this morning. I like that part about the pedophiles and the terrorists. I liked all that uh, about the killers and the murderers. I like that. They ought to go to hell, but I'm not. I'm a good person. That's what you're thinking. I, I'm a good person. I, I'm sure that you perhaps are not a pedophile or a terrorist or a killer or, or a murderer, but 
but we would have to begin to debate about, about your definition of good person. Because while you may be better than some, I guarantee you that just like the rest of us, you're a sinner just like the rest of us, and you have fallen short. You have fallen short of God's glory. There are certainly people in the world worse than you, but don't you understand, we're not comparing ourselves to one another. We are compared to a God who is holy, a God who is so great, so powerful, that honestly the fact that he even acknowledges us, the fact that he even lets us live is absolutely a sign of his goodness and grace. He owes us nothing. Maybe you've only told one lie in your whole life, but don't you understand, this God in heaven, this God who made you is a holy God, a God who alone is himself truth, and therefore that one lie you told disqualifies you from being in his presence. He owes you nothing. He could just squash you like a bug. Don't you understand? You are so small before him. He is so great before you. Who do you think you are to try to explain your sin away as if it's not significant? In the face of his ultimate holiness, my sin and your sin brings us the condemnation we deserve. He is God. We are sinners. All of us sinners. And the scripture makes plain that God one day will and must judge all the sinners. But what does the scripture say? The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. God is a God of vengeance and there is coming a day when all of the books will be open and all of the stories will be told and everyone will be giving an account of the life they've lived before a holy God, you and me included. Honestly, I would rather meet that God today while his patience is still extended toward me. I would rather pray to that God today while his goodness is still pouring out in my life. I would love to meet that God today while he comes to me as my savior and not coming to me as my judge. Do you understand? I would rather know him as my savior than one day face him as my judge. The Lord is a jealous God. The Lord is slow to get angry, but he has great power. And the Lord is good. And he loves to be close to those who trust in him. The message today for you is to trust in him. Come to him now. Accept him as the one who forgives all of your sin by his grace, by his goodness, makes it as if you've never sinned, allows you by his own goodness, his own friendship, simply to come into his presence and enjoy life as his son, as his daughter. This is the offer he extends to you today. But it is not an offer that will be open to you forever. You have this opportunity, this day today for salvation. There is no guarantee that you'll have another opportunity, and you don't deserve any other opportunity. This alone might be the only invitation you get to come to him, accept him as your savior. I'm telling you, you can meet him as your savior today, or there will come a day when you will stand before him as your judge. Pray with me. God, there's something about 
the world today, something about all of the people we know. Nobody fears you. No one has reverence for you, it seems. No one has that healthy respect for the God who gives life and takes it away. Lord, we slide into your presence so casually, and we expect you somehow to wink and overlook our sin. Oh, God, help us. Help us, Lord, to see that you are a jealous God who will not allow us to put false gods up in front of you. Help us, Lord, to understand that you are aware of the world and everything that happens, and you are aware of our lives as well. Lord, we can keep secrets from our parents, we can keep secrets from our church friends, but Lord, before you, there are no secrets kept. You see everything. You know everything, and you will judge one day with complete, complete righteousness. God, help us. You are jealous, but you are so patient, so very slow in your anger. So very patient, Lord, in extending the offer of salvation to us. Lord Jesus, I pray if there be any person in the sound of my voice who has not yet met you as Savior, Lord, I pray that you will teach their hearts to tremble at the fact that one day they will face you as judge. Lord, let us meet you today in your compassion so that we never have to face you in the day of wrath. We pray these things in Jesus' name, but for our own sakes. Amen. Stand together. I want to.